Lord God, we have gathered in this place to worship you together. There is something important that happens when Christians come together. Something powerful. And so God, as we join together in this moment to pray, it's with expectation. God, we desire that our country would turn back to you. And because of that, as we have been doing, we pray for our leaders. Lord, we pray for Donald Trump. We pray for Mike Pence. There is much happening right now in our country. Between COVID-19 and racial unrest and the election, and now a Supreme Court justice nomination, God, our country is so divided. We desire for unity again. But that unity is not just any unity. We desire for unity under the name and under the kingship of Jesus Christ. May our country come back to you. God, there is so much divisiveness. Who is going to take the step towards unity? Who is going to stand in the gap for our country? If not the church, if not followers of Jesus Christ, then who? God, our leaders need wisdom from you, and the church needs to stand up and lead. We do pray for Governor Walls. We pray for the CDC and the MDH, these organizations that are tasked with the safety of our country. God, we pray for our military, who also are tasked with the safety of our country. There are so many who have given so much to give us even the right to be in this place. We are thankful for this country, but we are prayerful for this country. We desire that we would turn back to you. Lord God, there are many among us who need prayer. May our church be a church that prays. Because we know that you are our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn to your Bibles, Luke chapter 9. Last Sunday, we saw a key moment in the Gospel of Luke. The moment when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God. We learned that the word Christ means the anointed one, the one chosen by God to be king. The term was filled with special meaning to the Jews of Jesus' day reflecting more than a thousand years of thought and expectation. But immediately after Peter's confession, Jesus warned his disciples that his anointed status was not going to be what they expected. He was going to suffer, and his disciples should also expect to suffer. Well, the passage we're going to be digging into today is one of the more complicated ones in the Gospel of Luke. Let's pray and prepare ourselves for God's Word as we look to Him for guidance. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would be here and speak to us today. Open up Your Word, Lord, 
Open up our hearts. We need you, God, to help us understand this passage. Amen. I like meat and potatoes. Do you? I mean, desserts are good. But there's something about just meat and potatoes. This morning's going to be meat and potatoes. This isn't going to be one of your happy, fluffy, feel-good sermons. This is going to be one of those jump in with both feet, dig down deep, and see what happens. You've got to have your thinking hats on today. It's going to be a lot. I hope you're ready. The final words Jesus spoke to his disciples after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ must have left the disciples wondering among themselves. Remember, Luke 9, 27. This is the last verse of the passage we studied last week. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now, last week I spent almost no time on that verse because there was so much other stuff to cover. But let that verse sink in for a moment, would you? Isn't that an interesting thing for Jesus to say? What does that mean? Well, taken at face value, it means that at least some of the disciples would see the kingdom of God before they died. Think of the implication of Jesus' words. There, there are some in the church today that are so concerned about the end times, right? They're so concerned about the end times that they easily overlook a passage like this. The kingdom of God has already arrived. To just let that sink in. Because we are saturated in the American church culture today with this idea that the kingdom of God isn't here yet. We are saturated with the idea that Jesus isn't going to actually rule until some future thousand-year period. Do you see what Jesus said? The disciples would be, some of the disciples would be alive and see the kingdom of God. And from our perspective, here's what that means. The kingdom of God arrived 2,000 years ago already. Can you imagine what the conversation must have been like among the disciples after Jesus said that? <laughs> and now, and now, look at what Luke puts next in the gospel. This is the very next passage, the very next verse. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became... Fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. 
Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. I am guessing that you recognize this story, don't you? In fact, the passage of Scripture even has its own name. It's always good when a passage of Scripture has its own name, isn't it? What's the name of this passage of Scripture? The Transfiguration. In Greek, metamorphoso. Yeah, where the word metamorphosis comes from. The transfiguration. I want to tell you a personal thought right now. Can I just pause and I just want I just want to say something about me, just for a moment. I want you to know something. There are parts of the Bible that I feel really comfortable with, and I really I feel like I understand them. But I want you to know that there are parts of the Bible that I have no idea. Sometimes when I stand up here and preach to you, I might give you the impression that I have all this stuff figured out. And some of you might think that you are also supposed to have it figured out, and when you don't, you might feel like you're less of a Christian. You're not. I have lots of the Bible that I'm just going... Okay. I don't have it all figured out. In fact, I am learning new things about the Bible and about Jesus all the time as I read and study. In fact, preaching requires me to go through a difficult process where I am come face to face with what I don't know. So I need you to understand that I'm not standing up here as somebody that's been to seminary. And as if seminary taught me all of this stuff, I'm one of you. I come to Scripture expectant, but oftentimes confused. Walking with God is a journey, with new understandings available to us every day. If sometimes you feel frustrated when you read the Bible because you don't understand, that's okay. That's okay. The worst thing you can do is not, is to, is, how how I want to put this? The worst thing you can do is to stop when you don't understand. Okay? It's a walk with God. Keep walking. Take the next step. Dig deeper. Try to find understanding. The worst thing you can do is to come to a point when you're like, I don't understand this, and just go, I don't understand this, and that's it. Have you ever done this? You read some scripture and you're like, Well, that didn't help. You ever do that? That's the worst thing. Here's the better thing. I don't understand this. I got to dig deeper. I got to read more. I got to ask somebody. I need to pray. Keep reading. Keep studying. Keep searching. Keep reaching for God. Take the next step in your walk. James 4, 7 through 10 says this very well. 
Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, I'm not preaching on this today, but I wanted to remind you of this. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Powerful words. You don't have to understand everything when you read scripture, but you do need to keep walking. Drawing near to God is about humbling yourself before God. Do you see that? It's a humble stance to get to a passage of scripture and go, I don't understand it at all. And that is drawing near to God at the same time. I want you to hear that. When you come to a section you don't understand, you have a choice to make. Be prideful. Don't need that anyways. Or be humble. I don't understand. Lord, I don't understand. Take the next step. And when you draw near to God, He draws near to you. When you humble yourself before God, He will lift you up. Now, I say all of this because the transfiguration is a passage of Scripture that I have struggled with my whole life. <laughs> there, are, When I read that, those short verses that we read, I have more questions than there are words in the verses. I don't understand. Did you hear that? I, I don't understand this passage of Scripture very well. And yet, I am called to keep walking. Do you see that? So today, this, this message is going to be me walking with you in humbleness before the Lord. So if you're ready, we're going to do something with this passage. When I look at this passage, I think of an analogy. This passage is like an onion. If you've ever peeled an onion, which I'm guessing most of you have, what do you know? When you take a peeling, when you take a layer off, what do you find? Another layer. And you take that layer off, and what do you find? Another layer. We're going to peel off the layers of this passage one by one. And there's a lot. Are you ready? The first layer. Prayer. Look at verses 28 and 29. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. The first layer is prayer. You know, the transfiguration, this event, is recorded in three of our four Gospels. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When studying the Gospels, it is always a good idea to read the parallel passages in all of the Gospels side by side. So that's a, that's a good tip. If you want to know how to interpret Scripture and you're reading the Gospels, this is a helpful tip. Whenever you read a story in the Gospels, read the parallel stories that are in the other three. Because they, they all present a little bit different perspective on the same story. They, they give a little bit different take. And each of the Gospels is presented to a different audience, so you get a, a different flavor, 
based upon the audience that each of the gospel writers were writing to. Now, they're all true. They don't contradict each other. They inform each other. So reading the other gospels in parallel is always a good idea. Now, I haven't done that hardly at all as we've gone through the book of Luke, and we're like 21 sermons in here. I have not done that hardly at all. That's actually been on purpose because I've made a decision to study the book of Luke. Okay? But I have been reading the parallel passages all along as we've been studying through this. I've been picking up bits and pieces from the others and letting them inform what Luke has to say. And it's always good to note when you read a passage in one gospel and the other two passages, and when you notice something unique about one of them that's not in the others. And this is one of those unique things. Matthew and Mark say nothing about prayer. Well, why is that important? It's important for a couple different reasons, actually. Of the, three, of the four Gospels, but especially the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke talks about prayer far more than the other ones. Every time, now you can mark this. We've already seen it, but you maybe haven't noticed it. Every time in Luke that Luke mentions prayer, something important is about to happen. Every single time. And here we have again, prayer. Jesus goes up on this mountain, but why does he go up? He goes up to pray. Matthew and Mark don't say that. Virtually every time something significant happens in the Gospel of Luke, it happens in the context of prayer. Ooh, I've said that twice, but now I'm going to say it a third time because it matters to us. Did you hear it? Let me say it again. Significant things happen in the context of prayer. Significant things happen in the context of prayer. Dave and Carolyn? Carolyn, you just have gotten done reading Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Uh, Jim Simbala, uh, Simbala, can't remember how to pronounce his name. But a very powerful book about the power of prayer and how it affects a church. And because of that, you have made a decision to start a prayer group on Wednesday nights. So, we've been there. Chuck, you've been there. Verna May, you've come. We've prayed. Jack has decided to start a Bible and prayer group on Monday nights. Some of you came to that. Some of you joined on Zoom. They study the Bible and they pray. Significant things happen in the church because of prayer. First layer. The second layer. Moses. Look at verses 30 and 31. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now here's where the multitude of my questions begin. Why did Moses appear? How did Moses appear? I thought Moses was dead. Did he have a body? Was he just a spirit? What? Where was Moses buried anyways? What's the significance of Moses appearing? How did the disciples even know it was Moses? It's not like they had pictures of Moses. That's just like the first five of about 50 questions I have about the appearance of Moses in this passage. Okay? You know, this is the only place where Old Testament figures 
show up in the New Testament. Well, I mean, Jesus, you know what I'm saying. But Old Testament human beings, well, Jesus is a human being. You know what I'm saying, okay? What is the deal with Moses appearing in this story? Well, let's talk about Moses just for a moment. Moses, as you very likely know, is probably the most important person in the Old Testament. The Jews at the time of Jesus revered Moses more than anybody else, more even than Abraham or David. Why was this? Does anybody know why Moses was so important? I'm sure you do. You sat through my timeline series. You probably know the answer to this question. Because it was through Moses that God gave the Jews freedom from slavery, and he gave the Jews the law and the covenant. The covenant. The law. The most important things to the Jewish life are the covenant that God made with them and the law that shows how to live it. The, and this is true even today. The Torah. If you listen to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's funeral, it was very short, she was Jewish. The, the rabbi who spoke, she spoke of the Torah. She, she, she sang it. If you haven't had a chance, I mean, the whole funeral was like 10 minutes long, very short. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, it was very powerful, very moving. But she spoke of the Torah and how the Torah is central to all that it means to be Jewish. Well, where did the Torah come from? Who was the, the arbitrator of the Torah? Who was the person that, that, that negotiated the law between God and the people of Israel? Well, Moses. The most important figure of the Old Testament. Moses represented the transaction between God and Israel. Look again at verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Jesus' face changed, and it became bright. But do you, do you remember what happened to Moses when he was in God's presence? Does anybody remember that? Exodus 34, 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. A layer of this story is the connection between Jesus and Moses. Now think about the power of that connection. We're going to get to that. Moses' with pres presence with Jesus, it brings to mind the idea of freedom and covenant and law, <coughs> excuse me, somehow Jesus is connected with God's eternal purpose of covenant and law. Somehow Jesus is uniquely connected with Moses. The third layer, Elijah. What do you guys know about Elijah. Now, based upon what I've just said about Moses, I can certainly understand why Moses was one of... I mean, if you're going to have somebody be with Jesus, like, if you've got to pick, Moses is definitely, like, number one on the list. But Elijah? Here's another question for you. Why did Elijah show up? I mean, think about the options. It could have been Abraham, but think about even this one. It could have been David. Why didn't King David show up? Have you ever, when you read scripture, do questions like this come into your brain? Because it's like a curse for me. 
I read Scripture and it's like all I see are questions. Not questions about my faith, but questions about what does this mean? What are the other options? Does that happen to you? I hope it does, and I hope it doesn't because it's maddening. So why Elijah? Why not David? A good question. Well, what do we know about Elijah? He was a prophet. In fact, you could make an argument that Elijah was the best example of what a prophet of the Old Testament was. Old Testament prophets spoke the messages of God to his people. That's what they did. In fact, prophets didn't usually bring new information. Prophets took the information of the covenant and reminded people of what to do. Prophets gave warnings for disobedience to the covenant, but they also gave blessings for obedience to the covenant. Now, of course, Moses was a prophet in this sense as well, but Elijah was the example of God's prophets. Oh, there's one more very important thing about Elijah. In fact, Maybe the most important thing to the Jews of Jesus' day about Elijah is something that we just take for granted. It's something that when we have had our Seder meal here at our church, we, we, we say this and every time we bring it up, somebody goes to me, well, that's kind of weird. That's very Jewish. It comes from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the, that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Do you know, those two verses have a very unique distinction. They're the final verses of the book of Malachi. Do you know what that makes them? The final verses of the Old Testament. And if you are a Jew living at the time of Jesus, do you know what that means? Those are the final words spoken by a prophet of God for the last 400 years. If you are a Jew at the time of Jesus, that is the last taste in your mouth of God's prophetic word. You think that might be important? If that's the very last thing, it might matter. And the very last thing that God says to his people through his final prophet, Malachi, the last thing he says is, Elijah's coming back. And when he does, things are going to be different. That was a paraphrase. That's the last thing that the Jews in the time of Jesus got from the prophets. Now, I know there's books in between um, that time, but that's... None of those books in between, we call those the Apocrypha. The Catholic Church believes that the books in between are Scripture, but we do not. That's a different sermon. But this is the last of the prophets speaking. Okay? Now, these two verses, being the very last of the book of Malachi and the last of the Old Testament, it means they are ridiculously significant. It means they are some of the most important stuff that a Jew would need to know at the time of Jesus, okay? It makes sense now, doesn't it, why Moses and Elijah show up at the transfiguration. The fourth layer. 
Moses and Elijah. So it makes sense that Moses was with Jesus, and it makes sense that Elijah was with Jesus because Moses gave the law. Elijah is supposed to come back at the end of all things. But why were they both there together? Do questions like this, again, come up in your mind? Why Moses and Elijah? I mean, couldn't Jesus have like met with Moses and then like gone to a different cubicle and then met with Elijah? I mean, why together? Well, Jews of Jesus' time often spoke. When they talked about the Bible, they talked about the Torah, but they also said something else. And Jesus used the same phrase. When they wanted to talk about the complete revelation of God to his people, what did they say? They said, the law and the prophets. That's what they said. That's another way of saying, for Jews, the Bible, the revelation of God. Well, Moses and Elijah, what do they represent? The law and the prophets. So Moses and Elijah being there together is a representation of the completeness of the revelation of God. Interesting. Did you think about it like that before? Probably not because you're not a first century Jew. This is why we're having this conversation, right? If I, was, if I was a first century Jew, I wouldn't need this explanation. I'd be like, duh. I learned that when I was like eight, right? But there's more. There's more about Moses and Elijah being together because they have a lot in common. Take a look at Exodus chapter 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Compare this also with 1 Kings 19, 11, and 12. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Guess who this is spoken to? Elijah. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Here's the connection. Moses and Elijah are the only ones who heard the voice of the Lord on a mountain. Does that sound familiar with the story we're talking about today? It's another reason. We get the three people now, the only three people in history, who were sent up a mountain... To hear from God, like literally the voice of God Almighty. It's a connection. Do you see the layer of the onion? But there's more. Wait, there's more. Cuts through a tomato. It's a Ginsu knife. Never mind. All right. Both Moses and Elijah had strange things happen to them at the end of their lives. Another connection piece. According to the Old Testament, by the way, Elijah didn't die. He was taken to heaven by God without dying. Look at 2 Kings 2.11. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. He didn't die. Elijah didn't die. He was taken to heaven with a chariot of fire. Well, what about Moses? Look at Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 6. And Moses, the servant of God, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. By the way, the he in that passage is the Lord Almighty. That's a strange way to die. How would you like this? 
Well, we need to have a funeral. Who should we have do the service? Pastor Jason? No, let's just have God himself do it. God himself did the funeral for Moses. God himself. And by the way, at this time, the time of Jesus, the Jews had believed that this unique thing about Moses was unique in the same way that Elijah was taken. In fact, I know it says that Moses died, but there were Jews at the time of Jesus. In fact, the majority of Jews at the time of Jesus thought that Moses had been taken to heaven like Elijah. So the word died there really means the time of his death. But then you can think, well, does death just mean he went to a different place? Again, more questions than answered, y'all. Okay? There's just connections between Moses and Elijah. Are you, connect, are, you, are, you, are you seeing this in this layer of the onion? Oh, yeah. One more very important connection between Moses and Elijah. Can I go back to Malachi again? Except I'm going to go one verse earlier than the passage I just read. Look at Malachi 4, now starting in verse 4 instead of 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day. Hey, you guys, the last three verses of the Old Testament are Moses and Elijah. Do you see the connection? If you're a Jew of the first century, all of this is at play in the transfiguration. (laughs) Another layer. The departure. Look at verses 30 and 31. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, as I have mentioned to you before, we today, when we read Scripture like this, we jump ahead in the story. Okay, we've got the advantage of knowing the rest of the story. But try to imagine what it must have been like for Peter, James, and John. They didn't know what was going to happen in Jerusalem. You know, we forget that a lot, don't we? For Peter, James, and John, okay, so there's Moses and Elijah, which is like, whoa. And there's Jesus, who his face is like glowing, and his clothes are glowing, so you're like, whoa. And then they're talking about his departure. By the way, do you know another way of saying the word departure? Another way of translating that Greek word? Exodus. How many layers do we have in this one story? The word departure here is exodus. Does that bring to mind anything? Exodus. You see, when it said Jesus' departure, Peter, James, and John, we, we can read that and we can go, well, that's when Jesus leaves. But what does the word exodus bring up? Jesus' exodus is full of meaning when connected with the exodus of the Jews at the time of Jesus. Jesus isn't just leaving us. He's guiding us somewhere. That's what departure means. He's guiding us to the promised land. He's not just leaving us alone. He's leading us to freedom when we were in slavery. Do you see the connection? And Elijah's presence reminds us that this new exodus is going to be a deliverance to a new kind of freedom. A freedom that leads us 
in the end, to God's grand plan of redemption. Exodus isn't about leaving, it's about taking us with him. Think about that. This should be, this should be like a moment of, oh, the entire New Testament plan is a re-exodus event. A new covenant, a new exodus, an exodus out of our slavery to a new freedom. And we today in the church, we so often miss these connections. Do you see this? An exodus isn't just about getting your ticket punch. It's about being along on the journey. The departure of which Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are discussing It's so pregnant with meaning. It's hard for me even to put it into words, the meaning that is present in that one word, departure. It is our great hope, you guys. It's our great hope that the wrongs of this world are going to be made right. Our great hope of justice finally winning over evil. Our great hope of eternal life in God's kingdom. Jesus' departure, his exodus, It's our eternal hope. (laughs) Praise God. Amen. Hmm. And this departure would come to fulfillment in Jerusalem. We're going to say a whole lot more about that later. The sixth layer. Peter's tabernacle suggestion. His shelter. Look at verses 32 and 33. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In parentheses, he did not know what he was saying. You know what the parentheses mean? That's an, he did not know what he was saying. That's a nice way of saying, and Peter stuck his foot in his mouth again. Here we have a moment of Peter not grasping all that was happening. You know, I find it interesting that Peter, James, and John were sleepy. Does this remind you of anything? Yeah, I could peel another layer off, couldn't I? What does it remind you? Jesus goes to a mountain, he's praying. The disciples are sleepy. Anybody? What does that remind you of? Gethsemane. Luke is foreshadowing Gethsemane. How many layers are in this stupid passage? So, more and more and more. You know, we're not totally sure what Peter was trying to accomplish with the shelters. Some think that he was alluding to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of the three great feasts of Judaism. And it reminds God's people of their dependence on God. The Feast of Tabernacles was a feast that happened during harvest. You know another way of saying the Feast of Tabernacles? The Feast of Ingathering. It's why we have Ingathering at our church. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a reminder of God's provision to us during harvest. So it's possible Peter was thinking, I'm I'm, I'm trying to get my mind wrapped around the dependence I have upon God in this moment of glory. Right? But there's more, which 
some people are unsure. What does this mean? I mean, others think that Peter was just trying to like worship. Like, so these shelters, maybe they weren't like tabernacles. Maybe they were like altars. So some people think that Peter was like setting up worship altars for the three of them. Of course, this would be very inappropriate. Why? Because we don't worship Moses and Elijah, do we? And if that's not bad enough, do you notice that Peter set up, he wanted to set up three of the same shelters as if Jesus was on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Obviously, Peter didn't quite have it figured out just yet at this time. You get that? Lots of reasons why Peter messed this up. And also, the last thing that other people have said is, Peter, Peter was maybe trying to like stay in this moment. Notice that he wanted to set up the shelters when they were starting to leave. Like Peter was trying to say, no, I want to stay in this moment of glory. I want us to stay here. And again, a total misunderstanding of what Jesus came to earth to do. Jesus didn't come to earth to remain in his glory. He came to earth to put off his glory, to die so that we could share in the glory with him. Peter missed it. Do you see that what I just said there's like fundamental Christian understanding? Peter did not get it. Okay, just to be fair, I don't blame him. I've, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of 2,000 years of Christian scholarship about this event. And I don't know what's going on. Really. I don't blame Peter for getting it wrong. Okay? But he did get it wrong. Just want to be clear about that. The seventh layer, or eighth, the cloud. Look at verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, this one's easier to understand, but it is not less significant. Let me remind you of Exodus 24. Again, we've been to Exodus 24 once today, but I want to go back to it and look at verses 15 through 18. When Moses went up, the, up, up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. When Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The cloud, it represents the presence of God. Another layer in this story. And that presence of God that Moses entered into to get the law, that presence of God that also appeared as a pillar of cloud in front of the Israelites to lead them. Again, this is like all of these things together happening in this moment. This, this idea of the consuming presence of God to lead and to bring revelation. All of this is, is in this story. And the mention of the cloud, that's what it's there for. It connects it together with, with the giving of the revelation, the, the power of God present in this moment. <laughs> oh, by the way, did you notice in Exodus 24, 15, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on it. For six days, the cloud covered it. That six days matters because remember at the start of our passage today, it was about eight days. In the parallel gospels, it's six days. In, in Exodus 24, it's six days, and then on the seventh, do you see? It's connected. The, the, all three gospel writers are looking at Exodus 24, trying to figure out, trying to wrap their minds around what happened on that day 
up on the mountain with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And they've connected it back to the incredible moment when God met with Moses in the cloud and gave the revelation that changed everything. And here we have a new revelation that will change everything. The eighth layer. The voice from heaven. Verse 35. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Can I just make a note here? If the very voice of God is in the text of Scripture, it might be worth writing down. Like this is the voice of God the Father speaking audibly to people. Okay, so here's the message. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Oh, but we're, remember, we're peeling off the onion here. What does that remind you of? Anybody? The baptism of Jesus. In fact, it's almost word for word. Look at Luke 3. We studied this a couple months ago. Luke 3, 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Almost the same. What's different? Look back again. You are in in Luke 9. This is my Son. But instead of saying, Whom I love, God says, whom I have chosen. What does that, what is that word chosen? If God chooses someone, what's the special word for that? This is just from last week. If you don't get this, I'm going to cry. If God chooses someone, what's the special word for that? Christ. When God chooses someone, it means the Christ, the one anointed by God. And the voice from heaven says, this is the one I choose. Do you understand? This is the story that happens right after the confession of Peter. When, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And then they say, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say a prophet of old. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. The chosen one of God. And in the next story, God himself says, This is the Christ. He says it because this is the one I chose. It's connected. I, there are so many connections in this passage with everywhere. It almost hurts my brain. Does it hurt your brain? Your brains, I can see some of you, your brain's hurting. Some of you have shut down. You're just like, that's it. I'm checking, checking out. I'm going to check my Facebook. I can't handle this anymore. Yeah, I can see it right now. You're just like on the edge of insanity. Layer upon layer upon layer. And for the sake of time, I had to stop putting layers in my sermon. There's more. And I'm stopping because I got to get to the point. What are we going to do with all this? Well, I'm somewhat comforted by the fact <coughs> that the disciples didn't know what to do with it either. 
Look at the, the last verse, verse 36. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Okay, so can you, can you imagine poor Peter, James, and John? They are literally sleeping. They wake up and see Moses and Elijah, and Jesus is shining, and they're like, uh, maybe we should put some tents up. Okay? And, and it, it was such a stupid suggestion that Jesus just, can you just see Jesus? His face is glowing. I think Jesus did this. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything. It just goes right into, there's a cloud. What's the cloud represent? And then, so Peter, James, and John are like, uh, uh. And then there's like this voice. This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. I'm not sure that's how God sounds. Probably not. Okay? And then, all of a sudden, just like that, it's just Jesus again. He's not shining anymore. And so the, this next, the next thing that, that gets said in, in this is, is really real. You ready for this? The disciples kept this to themselves. <laughs> yes, they did. So are we going to tell, tell Bartholomew this happened? No. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we should either. Let, let's go down the mountain. Just smile like it was really cool up there. Okay, can you imagine that moment? The three disciples, they would have been freaking out. They probably soiled themselves. Doesn't say that. I think it's likely. What would you have done? Imagine that. And then, look what happens next. And then we're done. I, hang with me. You have to look at what happens next. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37. The next day, okay, the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. You got that in your brain? They're coming down. Peter, James, and John are like, did that really happen? Did that really happen? Okay, the next day, they come down and there's a giant crowd. A man in the crowd called out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he says to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, but they did not understand what, he, what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Okay, this story... This is the story in a parallel in Mark where the father says, I believe you, Lord, help me with my unbelief. Oh, it's crazy. It's a crazy good story. And I am not going to exegete it for you right now because I already have. I preached on this seven years ago. So I'm going to put on the website, if you want to dig deeper into this story, from November 24. 2013, Mark was still the senior pastor. 
you would ask me to preach just on because you were gone somewhere, and I preached on this passage from Mark. So go on the website. Heidi and I are going to put that on this week. Write me a note because I'll probably forget. Okay, so we're going to put on there November 24th, 2013, Mark 9, 14 through 29. I went back and reread my sermon. It was surprisingly good. So you'll have to go and, and take a listen to it. So where does this leave us? What are we to take away from all of these layers? Is your brain hurting? Meat and potatoes. Here it is. Jesus is God's son. God's chosen. Listen to him. And he is intimately connected with the entire plan of God from the beginning. Entirely connected. All of this that we call the new covenant is God's fulfillment of the old. There's so much here. There's so much more in Jesus than what we know. There's so much depth. So much more. Don't be discouraged when you get frustrated when you read. The depths of God's word are endless. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep him front and center. In your mind is your king. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And humble yourself before the Lord. God's plan is so infinite. Humble yourself. God's plan is so intricate. Humble yourself. Do not be discouraged when you don't understand. Humble yourself and seek. Come near to him and he will help you understand. And I still don't think I've got this story. <laughs> not even close. Not even close. Thank you, God, for the riches and depth of your word. May we be a church that continues to take the next step in our understanding of you. In Jesus' name, amen.